This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Professor Tommaso Valletti from Imperial College London about life as Chief Economist of DG Comp at the European Commission. Well, I think it's a dream job if you are an applied economist like I am. I'm an industrial economist coming from a tradition of people looking at different industries, trying to understand what regularities might exist. So I have a deep interest in the market structure and market failures. Otherwise, I would have not devoted 20 years of my life studying something which works fine. I think there are lots of problems. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to be Chief Economist at DG Comp, the European Directorate General for Competition? Well, in this episode, you're going to get a glimpse. I'm delighted to share with you my recent chat to Tommaso Valletti, who just completed a three-year stint as the head honcho of DG Comp's economic team. A stint that, as you well know, has been during a period in which DG Comp's focus on big tech has attracted headlines around the world. Seems to me that the role would have had its stresses. Certainly, it's a world away from the ivory tower. So I started by asking Tommaso what was possibly the worst personal moment he had experienced while in the position. So a personal moment was when I lost my patience and I shouted, which I should never have done, especially in a big organization where you're trying to work by consensus. I was coming from academia where you have this testosterone males trying to show that they are the smartest. In economics, perhaps, not necessarily in law. Correct. I should rephrase in economics, you have this kind of approach and hopefully not in other fields. And so I was coming from that bad culture, I would say, and I quickly learned that if I wanted to make my views heard and understood, I had to convince people with arguments and with politeness and by cooperating together. So that was a good lesson that happened at first, and it was good for me overall. But, I mean, admittedly, there must have been stressful times during this period in your life. What? How did you deal with the stress? Well, I was very lucky to have a fantastic team, fantastic colleagues who are, in a sense, used to having a new chief economist every three years. That's the typical tenure. And so they knew there was this guy coming from the outside who had to be guided through the bureaucracy, the jargon, and the different job as well. So they helped me a lot. So the good thing was I always had like a sounding board, people I trusted very deeply. And so I would ask for advice. So I managed to get this on the job side. And on the personal side, when you have also a good partner, that's very helpful too. Tell us a bit about the profile of the team under the chief economist at DG Comp. Yes, I think it's an interesting institution, probably... It doesn't have many other counterparts in the world in the following sense. So the position of the chief economist was introduced about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And that was when the GCOMP lost a series of cases in court because the court said that the economic analysis was not sufficiently sound. And at the time, the commissioner was Mario Monti, an economist himself. And so... 
he decided to create a chief economist with a chief economist team, perhaps alongside what you already have at the DOJ, at the FTC. The characteristic of the team and the chief economist is that they have this typically an academic who comes in for three years. The guy sits already quite at the top of the organization. It is doing both support, but also checks and balances. And so you really want a fresh pair of eyes to do a lot of internal discussion so that decisions hopefully are better. So the chief economist reports directly to the commissioner by passing the vertical structure of Digicom. So this preserves independence. The chief economist team, we're talking about 30-something PhDs in economics, reports to the chief economist, and also they are perceived as being more independent, typical official or the commissioner. So it has good aspects and bad aspects, but the good aspect is that you really have a frank and open discussion internally. Hopefully this helps to achieve good decisions, yeah. So I notice from the website in the description of the role, there's reference to the chief economist giving independent guidance on economic issues. You've just alluded to that. But more specifically, independent of who or what? And why is that independence important? Well, independence, I believe, is important generally and not just for the economic analysis it's independence from political interference. And we may want to talk about the Armstrong Siemens case that we had just a few months ago, where this interference was quite unprecedented during my tenure, at least. Independence is also independence from, I would say, career concerns, put it this way. Half of Digicom, a bit more, are permanent officials. And it's not a peculiarity of Digicom, but when you are in big organization, you respond to your hierarchy, you respond to your superiors, you think what's good for you in terms of uh, career path and career trajectory. And so sometimes it's not really a matter of doing what you think it's right, but it's doing what you think your superior may think you should be doing. So the chief economist team tries a little bit to counterbalance that. It's not easy to achieve, also because in the chief economist team, you have quite a bit of revolving doors, people come in and out of consultancy, and not necessarily you want to do your entire life career at Digicom, although it's a very great place and people are happy to stay as well. So this is why you must give an institutional arrangement to preserve independence. And the chief economist is somebody who can really speak out, weekly meetings with the commissioner, the commissioner would be listening to the case team about a case, that's decision-making time, it would ask the head of a legal service to report the legal soundness of the case and then he or she the commissioner would ask me what do you think about the economics of the case and then rightly so the decision maker is a commissioner puts together all the various ingredients and decides i have to say in my three years no one ever tried to put any words in my mouth i expressed always independently what i thought genuinely of course whether you have an impact or not, it's a different matter. People may ignore you. Right. And what attracted you to this role in the first place, Tommaso, to leave the sidelines of academia and leap right into the fray? Well, I think 
it's a dream job if you are an applied economist like I am. I'm an industrial economist coming from a tradition of people looking at different industries, trying to understand what regularities might exist. So I have a deep interest in the market structure and market failures. Otherwise, I would have not devoted 20 years of my life studying something which works fine. I think there are lots of problems. And so if you can try to help understand the problems and fix them, this is really kind of a public sector ethos too. So I didn't do it because I was doing charity. It's a good job. It's a well-paid job, but it's a fantastic job. So it would be strongly recommended to any academic who wants to understand markets. You cannot do much research for during those three years, but then when you're done, you have lots of ideas you can put on paper. Sure, and a whole new perspective on how the law and the economics work in practice, no doubt. Tell me, you developed quite a high public profile in the role. You've said that you were encouraged and you did speak out internally, but you did so externally as well. Was that an intended part of the role, that it have an external facing element, or was that something you just saw personally as important? This is interesting because other people have asked me, and a certain serendipity and accident, literally there was an accident that I will mention in a second, but also it was intentional, if I have to be honest. So the accident was that in the summer of 2018, I started my holidays. I went to Italy, that's obviously where I'm from, and I still have a house there. And I noticed that on the roof, there was something wrong, that there was like a branch of a tree getting inside the gutter. I decided to go on the roof and I fell from the roof and I had a very bad accident. Now everything is fine, but I was forced in an hospital for the whole month of August and I was extremely bored where all my family was by the seaside having fun. And so I had a dormant Twitter account and I started tweeting and I realized that people were <laughs> following me. And so it was uh, the accident turned into an opportunity. Speaking out in public had already occurred because it's not just Twitter. I was going out to some conferences. There is advocacy that you have. I mean, there is a bit too much of that, especially, I don't know, in Australia, but in Brussels, there are too many of these uh, workshops and symposia, etc. So <laughs> We can't get enough down here. <laughs> okay. Instead, I can tell you there's far too many in Brussels. And I was a bit shocked, to be honest. I was shocked by the way economics was being portrayed. I was shocked by the level of lobbying going on there. I was shocked by how some highly paid people were not interested in understanding cases, were just loyal to their clients. That's something that prompted a reaction from my side because I started saying, this is not what economics is about. It's not this re-entry, frictionless world where everything is fine and we are going to channel all the merger to monopoly and everything else can go. And because this is not what I've been doing for 20 years, my reaction was pretty strong against a certain way of making economics really trivial. And there's a lot of people, and these are lawyers, I'm sorry to say, that pretend they understand economics and the economics they know is the Chicago School Economics 101 and that's about it. And they do it with an agenda. So they are paid to make an argument and economists and lawyers, we can really argue on the one hand, on the other hand, we can argue for anything from the sex of the angels onwards, we can have a view about it. Did you have the sense directly or indirectly that the leadership in DG Comp, whether it was the Director General or the Commissioner, valued the role that you played or were there any reservations they had about your public commentary? So I'm pretty sure they also were shocked and they weren't happy at all. But I have to say I've been treated in an extremely fair way. 
I think, and this is again my guess, that Vestager liked me, so she protected me in this role of speaking out. And of course, I would not have to talk about ongoing cases because she is the voice for that. She wanted the big audiences to announce a big fine or set a decision on a merger, which is okay. I wasn't there for the spotlight, but I was there really talking to young generations that by listening to me in conferences, in workshops, they also came afterwards to me saying that it was refreshing that you can still have some different news, you can fight, you can argue. I know my stuff. And so some people appreciating what I was doing. But of course, Digicom being a big organization, risk averse, created quite some uh, internal turmoil. For sure. Some interest at the very least, I'm sure. You mentioned Vestaga now. She's like a global rock star in our field, at least a household name for antitrusters. It seems she's either loved or hated. She's certainly got her diehard fans, but she's also got her harsh critics. Give us a sense of what it was like on the inside working with her and her personal style. On her, I can just say good things. So maybe I'm biased, but I saw her for three years. She's extremely well prepared. So she works hard, her entire cabinet. So she knew inside out what we were talking about. She wanted to challenge us, but not because she wouldn't believe in what we were doing, but because obviously she's the one who would go out in the public sphere and being asked the tough questions. So she really wanted to have us as a sounding board and all the defenses that we could help with. So extremely well prepared. I have to say a very healthy person in the sense that she has a life, she has friends, she's human. She has a human touch with people that works extremely well internally. When she goes out, she's an excellent communicator. So this is obviously European politics, but Denmark is a small country. She comes from the Liberal Party, which is a small party in the political European sphere and yet she's one of the most powerful commissioners now she's being just reconfirmed as head of digicom plus she has a wider portfolio that will allow her also to go into exante regulation and i want to come back to you and talk about her new role and what it might entail and mean for digicom but before i do that just staying on the question of your external dialogue while you were in the role to what extent did you see dialogue with your counterparts in other agencies, perhaps particularly the US, but not confined to that jurisdiction, as really valuable and an important part of the role? Again, I'm just going to give you my personal views, and I'm sure that at the DigiComp there was lots of other interactions going on officially. I was disappointed by the way we interacted with the US. Don't forget that I started in September 2016. In November 2016, Donald Trump became president. The first three months I was there, we were debating something very interesting for economists and lawyers alike, which was the innovation theory of harm. There was this big merger wave in the agrochemical sector, talking about Dow DuPont, Bayer Monsanto, ChemChina, Syngenta. So that was really something of new. There was lots of analysis we were doing. And uh, at first, we had good contacts with the chief economist at the DOJ, which was at the time uh, Nancy Rose from MIT. That was easy. We knew each other. We were coming from a similar background. We would be on the phone on conference call. 
And then Nancy said, look, I'm a lame duck. I'm done. There's going to be a new appointment soon. So I thought this is, again, my take on it, that she was interested in this innovation theater of arm. But then she said, look, outgoing, we're not going to do something which sounds too new at this stage because there is a new administration. With the new administration, I had zero contact, zero. It's been difficult for the DOJ to have a chief economist. They appointed somebody who stayed for six months, and now the position is still vacant. So perhaps the lack of contacts could be explained by the lack of an explicit counterpart. But personally, as chief economist, I had very, very, very little contacts. What about the FTC, though, and the Bureau of Economics there? Yeah, the FTC, we were discussing more on specific cases. It was not really regular. Instead, the good interactions happened more at the European level. Apart from the GCOMP, we also have NCAs, the National Competition Authorities. And in recent years, you probably have witnessed that Germany, France, the UK, but also Portugal, Italy, there is quite some activity and interesting thoughts. That was helped also by the fact that there is a network called ECN, European Competition Network, and we would have at least twice a year regular meetings with the chief economists of the ECN, of this network, so we would discuss about cases, and that would be closed doors. It would really be conducive to a good discussion, and then you would see that perhaps the Finns are doing a case which is very relevant for the Spanish, and then they start talking to each other. So we were promoting this kind of interaction. Well, certainly in the context of digital markets, which have been much of the public focus, at least, of the DigiComp work in recent years, we know the issues are common throughout the world. You've said that when you think of big tech, you think big, B-I-G problem. Just in a nutshell, from an economic point of view, what is the problem that competition agencies should be focused on when it comes to big tech? Well, what I'm saying is a no-brainer if you understand economics. Uh, economics, the way we describe it when it comes to markets, we say that markets are going to work fine under a set of assumptions. And then if you think about big tech, every single one of those assumptions is violated. So the downside is that markets are not going to work fine. So there are externalities, and we know that with externalities, competitive markets are just not good. There are zero price business models which are based around those externalities. There is lots of behavioral inertia. There's lots of switching cost. There is market power because concentration is unprecedented. I could go on, but all those elements that make what we call the first wealth of theorem of economics, competitive markets achieve efficient outcomes, they don't apply here. So I'm not saying anything radical, but it's precisely because of that, that it's interesting to look at them, study them, intervene, because you are expecting lots of market failures in, the, in those markets. Of course, I want to be mindful also of regulatory failures, so you don't want to make it even worse. But other than that, this is really what we should be studying. We're talking about the top five firms by market capitalization in the world. It is affecting all sorts of aspects of our lives. And we gave a sort of antitrust immunity for far too long. And in fast-moving markets, that's not the right approach. How much contest is there really, Tommaso, on these economic issues as it pertains to these markets? Because it does seem that economists are at odds with each other on the extent to which there are failures in these markets. 
Is that the case or is it just a loud minority voice amongst some economists that are pushing back on what you say is a no-brainer? This is one of the interesting bits and also my awakening. So if you talk about academic economists, there is not such a big divergence of view. And that's why we do our models, we publish our papers, that's why we study when you talk about economists that you tend to listen to in the competition fora, these are typically paid by the techs, their advocates. To me, the scandal is that they don't even disclose that they've been working or they still work for those companies any longer. People have become so cynical that they've forgotten some elementary things of transparency, of disclosing a conflict of interest. So this was really one of my personal fights of trying to expose this ridiculous way of saying this is what the economics says. It's not true. And it is said by peculiar people with peculiar interests. Well, you're not alone in that concern. We've had already a couple of episodes on the podcast with several guests talking about the potential risk to the credibility, if not the relevance of academia in general, if there's not disclosure of the type you've talked about. But is it just academic economists? I mean, why is it that competition agencies in general, although it's hazardous to generalise, have been so slow to catch up with developments in these markets? In particular, I'm thinking about merger control. We've seen so many acquisitions let through to the keeper and only now you hear competition agencies say, oh, we need to be more concerned about potential competitors and more relaxed on the counterfactual. Why is it that it's taken so much time to wake up to this or appear to have taken so much time? So there are different points here. One point, which is not exactly responding yet to your question, but I will, which is on the academic engagement. When I think specifically about the big tech, the problems I was highlighting before on externalities, inertia, market power, are empirical questions ultimately, and uh, you would want to assess them empirically. And the irony or the disgrace, according to your views, of this is that these are companies which are sitting on the largest possible set of data ever in the world. And you might expect, therefore, these companies to have produced lots of work or have attracted the attention of lots of academics, because this is exactly what we can do now with the big data, our techniques, the questions are super interesting, and this ought to attract the attention of academic economists who could build careers, but these companies have actually never disclosed a single data for economists, I mean, maybe for computer scientists and other stuff, but for economics, you don't see a single publication coming out from Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft in the past. 10 years, which is unbelievable. How come the economists couldn't publish anything on these companies, which is relevant to competition policy? The answer is because these companies closed up themselves totally to academics. They don't want to be monitored. They don't want to be studied. Your question was more on the agencies. But the agencies, with the lack of this evidence, are very reluctant to move. Uh, the agencies have done a good job in trying to have a transition period, at least in Europe, with the reform of merger control 20 years ago. And so now they were in uh, establishing themselves. They understood some techniques and we kept on using those techniques. Agencies, though, are also very reluctant in analyzing their own job. So the only 
way of understanding whether we've been over or under enforcing, it's by doing more exposed kind of studies. We want to see whether our remedies have been effective, whether concentration going up has produced increases in prices, but regulators and enforcers don't have the resources to do exposed studies, don't have the incentives to do the exposed studies, because why do you want to assess whether your job was good or bad? People are very afraid. This is a common problem for almost all the competition authorities. Perhaps the CMA in the UK is the only one which is more open. As you know, they do produce some exposed studies, and they are receptive to the findings. So, and recently, Andrea Pascelli said, with the big tech, we allowed far too many mergers. So, so it's quite clear that we didn't do the right thing. So I like that, that approach. We had Paolo Bucciarossi on the podcast recently. Yeah, he was the author of the report, yes. It was very revealing. And as you say, all credit to the CMA for commissioning that study. I want to just come back to academic economists for a moment, because you did allude Mm -hmm. to a certain demographic profile. I've heard it said that you once wore lipstick to a recent conference when you were participating on an all-male panel. What was the statement you were trying to make there, Tommaso? Right, right. That's... So as you might have guessed by now, I improvised (laughs) a lot. There was a conference in early July this year, and we're going to talk about industrial policy in the aftermath of the Alstom Siemens murder. As I said, it was a merger uh, that was heavily political in Europe. So we had to discuss about that. And when we started, I saw that we were seven on the panel, and one of us was the head of the South African Competition Authority. So I asked people in the audience, I said, before we talk about industrial policy and Alstom Siemens, can you tell me about what you see on this side of the panel? What do you see? And then after a bit, somebody reluctantly say, well, I see seven white people and one black person. I said, great, exactly. So this is something you notice. It's not very common, especially in circle with lawyers in the Brussels bubble to have a lot of people which are non-white. So I really appreciate that we can hear the views of an expert coming from another part of the world. And do you see any other odd thing? And people said, no. I said, you see, there are conscious biases and unconscious biases. So the unconscious bias here is that it's seven of us and we are all male. And it's not possible that there is not a single woman who would have something good and interesting to say about industrial policy. I'm sure that there is plenty of interesting female speakers. I promise myself, Tomas, that I would never accept to speak in a male panel any longer. And obviously, I didn't do my job. I apologize. Because the first thing you should be doing is to suggest names of female speakers for these kinds of events. And if the organizers cannot do it, perhaps we should stop accepting invitations. However, apologies, I didn't do that. So I want to make myself uncomfortable in order also to make you uncomfortable in a sense. Is there anybody in the audience who has a lipstick? And somebody said, I do. And it was a very nice red Labutin, which I learned it's a top brand. And I spoke for my half hour wearing a lipstick. But the point was not about making a stand about myself, but it was to make a point. Yes. Well, it's interesting because there's so much talk about the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley and in tech companies when, as you point out, the same critique could be leveled at the, at least the economics, if not the antitrust economics community specifically. Can we come back to DG Comp just briefly? And 
talk a bit about the institutional setup in European competition law and how that institutional framework affects decision making and processes. Because I'm sure you've heard this, Tommaso. There are some who say that the European approach to enforcement is inevitably politicized. It's hardwired into the system because the commissioners are political appointees and the result is that the whole decision-making structure is set up in a way to elevate politics above technical substance or merit. How do you respond when you hear that critique? First, I don't have such a negative view about politics in the following sense. So we live in democracies, people appoint their leaders and parties have platforms. And so if a certain platform has a certain view about competition policy and people elect those leaders, that's fine by me. So I'm not there to say a benevolent paternalistic approach. I know what's good for the people and I'm going to choose for them. So I would be careful. Having said that, my personal experience was positive in the following sense. And I'm talking about only Digicom. I don't know the rest of the commission. Digicom, the people working there are well-prepared. They are very professional. They have an incredible sense of mission. People know what they're doing, which is not obvious when you are working for a big bureaucracy. They know what they do and why they are there. Of course, they're civil servants and their families. They don't want to work at weekends, which is fine. It's part of a healthy approach to life. So during my three years, I don't know, maybe people gave up on me because of my personality, and it's clear I'm not up for grab. But I never received external pressure or internal pressure to say anything in a certain direction. I always try to do my best according to my lenses as an economist, which are course, just one set of tools that you can use. And I could go in front of a commissioner and say what I thought. So, And this was a period also where the DG, the Director General of Comp, was a, a very powerful and influential German. If you may think that politics will prevail, that was the right moment for Germany to exert an impact when, during Brexit, this was my time. So if the UK was out, you would have expected Germany to play the most major role, and instead, Amazon Siemens was blocked, and I can come up with other examples. So I did see attempts to, to have a political debate around competition policy, but the institution is quite resilient. And we have cases where we blocked the biggest German company merging with the biggest French company. Yes, that's probably a real case study of pushback against political interference. You do have more political interference when it comes to state aid, which is something which is very unique yeah. to Europe. Okay. And there, clearly, you could see that some cases wouldn't even arrive to my attention because some other level of discussion. The other thing I've heard said is that DG Comp enforcement is driven very much by complaints made by competitors, as we know. That was the impetus for some of the recent major cases in the antitrust area. And the premise of the observation seems to be that, as a result, decisions are focused too much on protecting competitors rather than protecting competition or consumers. And I think that contrast that's being drawn there is with the US where complainants might play less of a role because they're more likely to bring their own private actions. Do you have a response to that? So yes, you just said that private action is much more important in US than in Europe. That's important. In Europe, we don't have yet a lot of private action. And so that's a big difference. 
listening to complaints, I mean, you do want to have whistleblowers, you want to have evidence, uh, especially when this evidence is very difficult to collect. Perhaps you are referring specifically to the Google case. And so this is useful when people, because you don't see data, they tell you more what's happening, they tell you how the market works and so But then this is one of the inputs. I don't think it's correct to say ever that Europe wants to vet competitors. It's true, perhaps, and I think it's just a fine distinction, but it's true that Europe is interested in protecting the competitive process. The competitive process means ultimately that you want to have competition in the market. And so this comes as a side effect that, that you need to give a chance to competitors. You don't want to protect inefficient competitors, of course. But coming from an economist, I tell you, this idea, which is more a continental German idea, that the competitive process is very important is something that I reconsidered and makes a lot of sense to me. Mm, and requires competitors, as you say. Yeah. What about the length of time taken in investigations and decisions? As we know, Google Shopping took seven years and is now on appeal. Intel is still on foot. What does take so long? And is the length of time warranted? Is it a good thing? It's a bad thing, especially when it comes to rapidly expanding industries. It's insane, honestly. So it's a success if a case takes three years, it's seen as we are working according to the tools we have, according to the rules, and that's what it is. But the companies are protecting their own interests. So completely different from mergers, where there is a sort of alignment, the merging parties want to give you information because they want the transaction to be approved. They want a decision. Yeah. And instead, in antitrust, companies like Qualcomm, which are litigious by nature, so whatever you ask, they would say that this is disproportionate request. And so they send the lawyers and it goes on and on and on. So there's also problems internally. The problems internally, I think, is that sometimes people, as you said, listen to complaints. They think they have a case. They don't think through enough. And then at some stage, you don't know where you're going. So the problem with the Google Shopping case is that because it stayed for too long, if you ask 10 people what the case is about, you would get 10 different answers, which is not very helpful. No? So this is where really antitrust in digital markets is taking too long. And it is a pity as well, because in principle, coming with an antitrust action could really be the exemplary deterrent effect showing people what can or cannot be done. And we are not there. We are not there. That's why I think we're moving more and more into ex-ante regulation. The two things are not mutually exclusive. I, I think we are going to emphasize more ex-ante regulation. Yes, certainly we've seen that uh, Europe's leading the way in that regard. But it also is apparent that there's increasing appetite for interim measures being taken by DigiComp to at least stem the damage in the interim. Yes, after 20 years. That's great, finally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Speaking about appeals, are judges likely to be possibly the biggest obstacle to ensuring that antitrust doctrine adapts to digital realities? We've just seen the Dusseldorf court reject the Bundeskartelland's decision in the Facebook case, which some have greeted with great disappointment, others cheering, depending on where you sit in the debate. Do you think it's going to be challenging to take judges on that journey of understanding that doctrine needs to adapt? So the markets have evolved and have changed. So I hope we get out of this catch-22 situation we're in now because the conservative approach is to say we do something new if we have enough evidence. 
but then to have some new evidence, you have to do something new. So, and instead, <laughs> if you keep not doing anything, then then we, you will never venture. So, yes, most likely the Commission in recent years tried a bit to push the boundaries, and we see what the courts will say. We have to try. I personally, and again, this is. It's a surprise for me, I don't know for you, Caron, but the fact that an authority should win 100% of the cases in court, it's bizarre. So for me, I mean, you want to experiment, test, and learn something new, but easy for an academic to say, obviously, because that's what we do. We like experimentation. But I've seen people really shocked by losing in court. I'm with you on that, and we are lucky in Australia that we have a competition agency in the ACCC and a chairman who is firmly of the view that if the agency is winning 90 to 100% of the time, there's something fundamentally wrong with the types of cases it's bringing. I want to just ask you to wind up, what, in your view, now on the outside, do you think DGCOM's next chapter is likely to hold? And perhaps you might comment in that regard on the dual role that Vestager has just taken on, you referred to earlier, the digital portfolio, as well as, of course, being reappointed as competition commissioner. Do you see it as likely to be more of the same with an emphasis on cracking down on big tech? Or do you think there are other areas of priority that might also feature? So the big tech everybody's talking about, and so perhaps I shouldn't comment too much on that. As I said earlier, I would expect more example regulation. And the, the challenge there is obviously to remain principled, to bring in some evidence, which is sometimes lacking, not because we don't have it, but because the big tech companies are sitting on a trove of data that they should share with authorities. And the authorities have the duty to analyze this data properly. But uh, my anticipation is that we will have more you know, data portability, interconnection, open interfaces. Also, to keep an eye on uh, entrepreneurship in Europe. If you are as an entrepreneur in the Baltic country, say there is lots of talent there, you want to be able to develop a platform by not by being squeezed out immediately by one of those giants. I still think that there is instead more on the boring side of our enforcement. I've witnessed quite an unprecedented increase in the concentration and margins and the market dominance across the board, so even in very boring industries, copper, steel, cement. But these are at the very core of every good that we manufacture. So I would hope that on the murder side, the enforcement rate are going to go up, or at least a signal is going to be sent, because otherwise we... As I said a bit earlier, there is the risk that we enter into this framework where we challenge only mergers monopoly. I think that we should keep competition thriving. There's lots of competition coming from Asia, from China, but these are giants. When they are giants, all deficiencies, the economies of scale have already been exhausted. They should not be allowed to grow even further, and then we lose out the potential competition, which is essential. So that's where I hope the competition authorities keep doing their job, their own useful and boring job, understanding that in the current market with higher concentration, enforcement has to be higher. And what about your next chapter, Tommaso? Are you inspired by your three years at DG Comp in a way that's shaping how you are now going to choose your academic priorities? And if so, what directions are they going to take? 
so now I'm just back at the university and my dean asked me if I could be the new head of the Department of Economics, which I accepted. Ah, congratulations. And it was funny. So in July, we were discussing at Comp uh, with my colleagues what's going to be the fine for Qualcomm in an antitrust case. And so we were talking about big figures, big important things. At the same time, the dean had just announced my colleagues I would be the next head of the department. So I keep receiving emails on my academic account saying, oh, congratulations, by the way, my carpet in my office is stained. Can you please fix it? So, so this is what I'm dealing with now. So back to earth. I want to do research. I want to stay close to students. I want to keep having perhaps a public policy profile. I've been approached by many consultancies, but I, as you have already understood, I'm not interested in that game. And uh, the market also realized it. So I'm not out there to make money. I hope this will be also an example, a signal, which is important because too many chief economists are, there is revolving doors and they go and, and advise for those companies because they have some inside knowledge of the machine or the big organization they work for. If people like me who are lucky, so had some success, cannot stay on the public side, I mean, who should be on the public side? So I hope people will still want to listen to me, even if I'm not advising on cases, I still have my views. And I'm starting to do some research on these topics. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that, and I hope you're going to keep up your Twitter profile as well. Well, I will. I don't know if people will still want to read what I write, but I will. Don't worry. So, being in the Brussels bubble, as Tommaso calls it, clearly has its upsides and its downsides. And no doubt there will be many of you who hope that he continues to speak out on the big issues in the debate surrounding digital markets and the dominance of big tech. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Dr. Shopi Bhattacharya from Jindal Global University and Uchwal Kumar from the Consumer Unity and Trust Society, sharing with us the many fascinating developments in digital competition policy in India. Until then, you can find links to Tommaso's academic work and to his Twitter feed in the show notes. And as always, other resources and links at competitionlaw.com. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. And I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Catch you next time. Thank you.